0: The Where Our Minds Wanda podcast may contain sensitive content. Listener discretion is advised. fellow wanderers, to the places our minds wander.
1: Where strange lights speed beyond reason across a clear night sky.
0: The house at the end of the road, where disembodied voices whisper, and strange noises make the living shiver.
1: Lurking shadows hiding on the edge of the woods, just outside your back door. Odd, true
0: events throughout time that lead you down the rabbit hole. I'm Wes. And I'm Beth. And this is Where Our Minds wander. Hello and welcome to Our Minds Wander, all you fellow wanderers. I'm Wes.
1: And I'm Beth.
0: And each week we delve into stories that piqued our curiosity.
1: So the uh, middle of this week was a little rough. Our laptop did an automatic update and deleted all of our files. So Wes spent, what, 8, 10, 12 hours trying to recover everything that deleted
0: Yes, I did. Not a big fan of those forced Windows updates. But the laptop we use to edit our podcast is finally back up and running. Thank goodness. Thank you, Microsoft, for the crappy update.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But at the the end of the week, we got a very lovely email on Facebook from Andy in Cyprus. And uh, it made me chuckle because he asked where my accent is from which sparked a mini texting frenzy between me and some friends, because honestly, I was not aware that I have any sort of accent. So I texted my best friend downstate and asked her, do I have an accent? And she was like, no. And then I asked one of my local friends, and she said, well, we all must have the same accent because I've never noticed it. And so I was still curious, and I texted my dad and asked him, and he very gently replied, Northern New York, sweetie. So (laughs) the whole thing made me laugh because I honestly don't think I have a Northern New York accent either. But uh, I messaged Andy back, and he said that he was quite chuffed to hear from us, and he challenged us as to whether or not We know what chuffed means. And, you know, we've watched the great British baking show for years. So, yes, we know what chuffed means. But I have to say, I'm glad he was chuffed and not gutted to hear back from us. Right. (laughs) And it's almost Christmas. So, Merry Almost Christmas to all you fellow wanderers who celebrate the holiday.
0: Yes, we celebrate Christmas in our house, but... We don't want to exclude those of you who don't. So tonight's episode is a little different. We are going to talk about some Christmas traditions, but not in the conventional kind of way.
1: Would people really expect anything else from us (laughs) to be conventional? (laughs) I mean, you did find the coolest wrapping paper this year. It has Santa Claus all over it, but he just happens to be piloting a UFO.
0: Yeah, wasn't that awesome?
1: (laughs) It's pretty cool.
0: I think the kids are going to get a kick out of that. So our thought was that no matter what you celebrate, you might get a kick out of what we're going to choose to talk about tonight.
1: And we also thought that instead of each of us doing a separate topic, we'd kind of share the same topics and tell you about them together. Yeah, it's
0: a bit different for us, but I think it'll be a lot of fun. Santa Claus. Kris Kringle. Father Noel. Saint Nick
1: Krampus <laughs> That one doesn't belong <laughs> There
0: are a lot of names for Santa Claus around the world He is known throughout many countries to deliver gifts to good little children But what about Krampus Santa Claus's not so nice companion Not many Americans have heard of Krampus other than as a character on a few supernatural-themed shows and a fairly popular movie back in 2015. Who exactly is he and
1: what exactly does he do? Imagine this. December 5th is a cold, wintry night in Vienna, Austria. All good children should be snug in their beds, dreaming of the lovely gifts Santa Claus is delivering that night. But what about those who haven't exactly been good? What about those children who talked back a little too much or threw temper tantrums a little too often? Those kids are the ones who should really be fast asleep in their beds, maybe even before their regular bedtime, hoping to hide from the other creature lurking along the streets. If any naughty children are awake, the only clue that Krampus might be coming is the uneven footsteps caused by his one human foot and his one cloven hoof. Half man and half horned goat, Krampus is said to be covered in fur and to have a long forked tongue. His torso and arms are wrapped in chains strung with bells, but he doesn't just target the houses of naughty children, not at all. Krampus visits every house, and only he determines whether or not he will use the large bundle of birch sticks and woven basket strapped to his devilish back. The sticks serve various purposes. If a child is deemed only a little naughty, Krampus will simply leave a small bundle of his sticks, or perhaps only a single stick, instead of presents. But if a child is considered more badly behaved, Krampus may take his entire bundle of sticks and beat the child with them.
0: The idea is that if Krampus leaves behind any telltale signs that he has marked the children as naughty, when St. Nicholas visits later that night to leave presents under the tree, he will bypass the presents for the poor kid.
1: And for the really, really naughty kids... Well, that's what Krampus's basket is for. Those kids are popped right into the basket and carried off. But what happens once you're carried off? No one really knows. But the possibilities aren't very nice. The poor child might be dropped into a frozen river or delivered to hell, or they might even be eaten as a snack by Krampus himself. All three choices are terrifying, and even the idea of being scooped up by Krampus should be more than enough to encourage children to follow the rules, obey their parents, and be nice to their siblings all year round. Some families might even receive an early warning that their child was on Krampus's list. They would find a miniature version of his bundles of sticks, painted gold, which they would hang up inside their home as a cautionary reminder to their children to be good.
0: So when did Krampus first make an appearance? Although his origin does seem to be in Austria, he is also well known in East Germany. He was first widely feared as early as 1618, but his official origin may be even earlier than that. Some researchers say that he very closely resembles a son of Norse giantess Hel, spelled H-E-L, who ruled the underworld. Hel was the daughter of Loki, and she was considered pretty harsh and unfeeling. But sometime between the 1600s and the 1800s, Krampus' Norse name was replaced. Krampen means claw in German. And the creature had physically morphed into what we recognize as Krampus today, taking on more Christian symbolism. And during that time, Krampus was so popular that entire parades were thrown in his honor, called Krampus Knot. Townsfolk would dress up as hairy, furry goat men, complete with horns and one cloven hoof, eager to swat spectators with bundles of sticks they would often walk side by side with someone dressed as St. Nick, so it was the perfect visual depiction of good and evil. In some areas, the parades got so out of hand because of alcohol and the level of violence that they were eventually banned. But the 1800s also brought in a new wave of Krampus celebration, the Krampus card. Similar to a Christmas card featuring St. Nick, the Krampus cards were given out to friends and neighbors But that's when the similarities end, because Krampus cards look more like something you'd try to frighten someone with on Halloween. In most of them, Krampus is the central figure, a dark, furry, demonic-looking creature, a sort of cross between a devil and a goat. His long, bright, red, forked tongue is usually extended out, curling towards terrified children, either trapped in his wicker basket or caught up in his thick chains. The background of the cards was often solid red, but in some cases, they might be a desolate winter landscape. The Krampus figure is always leering with an almost frenzied gleam to his eye. In some, he holds a pitchfork aloft as though it is merely an eating utensil. In others, he doesn't have a pitchfork, but he does lean towards the frightened children almost as though he's sniffing them with his disgusting tongue. It's hard to look at them and not feel a bit uncomfortable.
1: But you know, to be fair, some of the cards seem to lean a little more towards the humorous. In one example that I saw, three children are inside the wicker basket with just their faces, like, peering over the edge, And they're on the back of a cherry red sled. And Krampus is sitting upright at the front, steering them down the hill. But the way that he's seated and manning the sled, it just, it's really comical because it looks like he's proudly driving his new car down the hill. But in each one, the children all look truly terrified or at least remorseful.
0: Yeah, some of them are pretty cool. Because the Krampus knocked parades had gotten out of hand and the Krampus cards were scarier than all hell, several towns and churches began to view Krampus as too frightening and too violent to continue supporting. Slowly as parades were banned, the belief in Krampus began to die out, and in some places, he was forgotten altogether. So forgotten, in fact, that most Americans have never heard of him. His legends hadn't really made it over to this country at least not in any huge wave. But Santa Claus traditions were kept, including the threat of a lump of coal in your stocking. It seemed like threatening naughty children with coal or the idea that Santa won't leave any gifts for kids who misbehave was more in line with our cultural beliefs at that time.
1: You know, I was just thinking about the song Santa Claus is Coming to Town and its opening line, you know, you, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. Like, in line with this Krampus stuff, the opening of that song seems a lot more ominous than it ever did before. Yeah, it does. In the early 2000s, the interest in Krampus began to resurface. There are many Krampus-knocked traditions still thriving in Europe, and some have taken hold in the U.S. as well. Several cities are now celebrating Krampus Nacht, at least on some scale, by having Krampus-costumed figures in their annual Christmas parades. Some cities, like L.A., Philly, and Rochester, have even offered Krampus celebrations, where many, many Krampuses fill the streets. They are coupled with family-friendly activities and are meant to be more playful than scary. But is there a chance that Krampus will become as commercialized as Santa Claus has been? Is that the way it's headed?
0: Well, I hope not. I hope the Krampus tradition is one that stays as regional as it once was and as terrifying as it once was, and that we don't cutify it and morph it into something else entirely different.
1: I agree. Some things are just super cool the way they are, and we don't need to mess with them.
0: But we did pick up a Krampus with a little child in his basket when we were out to one of our local stores shopping.
1: We did.
0: And he's pretty cool looking.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I can say a trademark name, but it's one of those furry bone figures. And uh, he has his tongue hanging out and he has a bell attached to him in the wicker basket and the little kids peering (laughs) over the edge of the basket.
0: It's so awesome.
1: I had to have it. (laughs) Hey, did you know, in 2015 in Bryan, Texas, the Guinness Book of World Records bestowed the largest gingerbread house world record. Measuring 39,202 cubic feet, the house, made entirely of gingerbread except for its wooden foundation, was 60 feet long, 42 feet wide, and 20 feet tall. The structure required 7,200 pounds of flour, 7,200 eggs, 3,000 pounds of brown sugar, 225 gallons of molasses, and 22,304 pieces of candy for decoration. But if you were tempted to eat it, even if it took you weeks to do it, it would total 35,823,400 calories the house attracted awestruck visitors, as well as over 2,000 bees. Who'd have thunk it? So I was tempted to change all the radio stations in the car to Christmas music stations just to see what you'd do. Really (laughs) now? Well, I think
0: that'd bring on a pretty good spanking.
1: (laughs) Wow, this is a PG-13 show.
0: Well, Christmas music has been playing in some of the stores since the end of November. I've pretty much had my fill of it.
1: To be fair, we do tend to recycle the same ones over and over, and some of them can really drive me nuts because they get stuck in my head. Although I did find out the other day that I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, which I've always found really sad and melancholy, actually was written to be sad and melancholy. Irving Berlin wrote it after the death of his five-year-old son. So knowing that, it just makes so much more sense to me why it always makes me sad. But I think the best contender for songs that get stuck in my head this time of year is The Twelve Days of Christmas. Have you ever really thought about that song?
0: No, I can't say I've given it much thought.
1: Well, No one really knows just how old the 12 Days of Christmas song is, or even exactly what it means, but its meaning has been the topic of fierce debate for a really long time. So my first question, of course, is when exactly are the 12 Days of Christmas? Now, some of you listening might be thinking, "Uh, duh, it's from Christmas Day until the Epiphany on January 6th, but... I wasn't raised in a practicing Catholic household, so I had no idea.
0: Yeah, neither was
1: I. And that's what fascinates me about so many of these holiday songs, that we sing them and hear them over and over on the radio, but we might not necessarily know what they mean. So, the 12 days of Christmas in Christianity marks the days between the birth of Jesus and the arrival of the Magi, which took 12 days. Except not everyone around the world agrees on when those 12 days were, because not all religious calendars are the same. So, in some cases, the 12 days of Christmas run from January 7th until the 19th. But regardless, that's where the 12 comes from. But what about all the gifts? I mean, I don't know if ten lords a-leaping was a gift anyone ever wanted in any time period of history.
0: Well, I'd take eight maids a-milking. Do you think they'd fit under the Christmas tree?
1: Uh, no. But I don't know if anyone could fit 12 drummers in their house or courtyard, so the whole thing can seem kind of confusing, especially when you throw in all those animals being bestowed upon the person narrating the song.
0: There was a theory for some time that the song actually was a coded verse— that each day represented something symbolic in Christianity, and that during the 1700s when Catholics were persecuted in England, it was a way for parents to teach their children the catechism. There are actually several Catholic sites online that show support for this theory, claiming that the three French hens, for example, represented the Holy Trinity. The two turtle doves were the Old and New Testament, and the partridge in a pear tree was the son of God. It's pretty interesting to look through the lyrics on these sites and see how each verse does match up with specific religious things. And they might be 100% right. But skeptics point out that the word Christmas itself is mentioned 12 times in the song, which would certainly tip off people who heard it that it was a Catholic thing. As you can imagine, this argument has turned into a pretty heated debate. What we do know about it was that it was first published in the year 1780 in a book of children's poems. It wasn't set to music. It was just a piece of cumulative verse poetry. Of course, back in 1780, the verses weren't what they are today. And over time, things have changed multiple times, from ships a-sailing, to bears abating to badgers-baiting. Even lines that have stuck around for several hundred years are slightly different, perhaps due to misinterpretation. For example, many scholars believe that the four calling birds were originally four collie birds, which was slang for crows.
1: A lot of the song revolves around types of birds, and there are plenty of scholars who believe the song was originally all about them. From partridges to turtle doves to even the five golden rings— they point out that golden pheasants have a naturally occurring color pattern around their necks that might be referenced in this line of the song. And so they argue that the song was really nothing more than a tune about lavish feasting, either by the very rich or by those yearning for all those different types of fowl.
0: The version that we know in the 21st century was written down in 1909 by a man named Frederick Austin. Because Christmas music was popular, the old set of verses may have just naturally seemed like a good choice to set to a tune. And what a tune it is, almost like a never-ending merry-go-round. And kids like merry-go-rounds, and perhaps kids are more closely tied to the mysterious origin of the Twelve Days of Christmas song than we think. There is the theory that the song was originally a kind of truth-or-dare cumulative game. A group of kids would gather together, and one would start off the song with the first line. Each kid would have to add the next line, remembering what day it was, and then they'd have to remember all the previous lines before it. Each time it was played, the kids could alter the lines to try and mess up their friends. If someone messed up, they would have to give the starting kid a piece of candy and some other small agreed-upon token. Games like this were popular at Christmas time, and it certainly would have kept them entertained. Which could also explain why the song has been parodied so often. It's kind of fun to come up with your own verses.
1: Please don't. (laughs) I have a more practical question, though, when I listen to that song. How much would all of that stuff in the song cost? Like, if you add it all up. So I know that. If you add up the number of gifts, it's actually 364, which I find kind of interesting.
0: Right. It seems like it's more than a coincidence.
1: And I guess there are some people out there who have done the research and the math, and they have come to the conclusion that if someone wanted to gift all of the things in the song to some lucky gift receiver, they'd be looking at a whopping $30,000.
0: Wow. Go figure someone would break it down to dollars and cents. <laughs> but that is quite a bit. And I imagine the number goes up every year with inflation.
1: And, yeah, the difficulty of trying to find some of those things.
0: There's I don't, that, too.
1: I don't even know where you find ten lords a-leaping or your eight maids of milking.
0: I might have an idea on that.
1: Well, then, I hope all of you were good this year and Santa shows up and not Krampus. But I think next year I might be a bit more naughty, if you're okay with that. I'd really like to sit down and have a chat with Krampus. And maybe he would agree to be a guest on our show.
0: Yeah, I'd be okay with that. Anything <laughs> to, to, you know, get to see Krampus. You never know. Well, I think that about wraps it up for this episode, Beth. We wish all of you a very happy and safe holiday.
1: Yes, I hope it's very merry. And we'll see all you wanders next week for an all-new episode
0: of Where Our Minds (laughs) Wander.
1: See you soon. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. We look forward to traveling with you again to the places where our minds wander.
0: If you like what you heard, please take a moment and provide us with a five-star rating and a comment on your favorite listening platform. It really helps us move up the list and become more visible on the podcast charts so new people can find us.
1: Thank you all for your continued
0: support. See you all next week for an all-new episode of Where Our Minds Wander.